Lord, we, we thank you that it was Christ who is worthy. And because of him being worthy, we as those who trust in you are clothed with his righteousness. Lord, we pray that even as we are clothed with his righteousness, that through your word, you would make evident to us your will. Do that this morning as we continue to engage with the gospel of Mark. Bring fresh insight. Cause us to desire to live the ways that we already know. Through the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. We've been continuing to work our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we've been focusing on various sections that are also being covered by our Tuesday coffee break Bible studies. In the last couple weeks, we followed Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. Uh, He entered in a manner that was triumphant. There was Um, Lots of pomp, lots of circumstance, lots of celebration of the people, lots of imagery from the Old Testament with him riding on a colt. And with the cloaks, not only under Jesus on top of the colt, but also the cloaks on the ground, all those things which focused in on Jesus himself being the next Messiah, the next king of Israel. And we saw perhaps how that one encounter set up the the pattern that Jesus would do. He entered Jerusalem, he went to the temple, and he left. The next day, he returned to Jerusalem to teach at the temple and then went away. And then he again, last week as we looked at it, he went to Jerusalem and spoke a parable against the teachers of the law. It was those teachers of law often called scribes or, or Pharisees who, who were continually trying to trap Jesus. They had asked him if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. They had had Sadducees come and ask him, question him about the resurrection of the dead, and they questioned Jesus about what the greatest commandment was, all in a way to, to trap him. And yet Jesus speaks then this parable that speaks against those very people who were questioning him. Jesus is not going to hesitate to continue to speak against the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, and their corruption. And we'll see that today as we turn back to Mark chapter 12. We're going to go to Mark chapter 12, verse 38. In this passage, Jesus will once again speak out against those teachers of the law. Uh, You'll be able to find that. 
uh, in the Black Bible on page, I think, 825. Students, if you have your uh, NIRV with you, that would be on page 1,238. And let us read... We're going to read two sections, verses 38 through 44. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And also have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put everything, put in everything, all she had to live on. That's where we'll stop. Perhaps you notice that there were two different headings for these two different teachings or stories that Jesus spoke to his disciples. The first one, the warning against the teachers of the law. The second, the widow's offering. And it would make us seem that They are not related at all. One is only speaking of the teachers of law, and one is speaking about a heart of giving. And we often talk about them separate. We often use the second story, the the widow's offering, on on those weeks that we want to talk about giving and the heart that we we give with. And and that is a a fine use of, of the passage. We see how how the widow did truly give of everything she had. And we would focus then on on the fact that God, God desires more the heart of the giver than the amount of the gift, right? That's, that's what we would say. But we're going to look at these two stories together as a unit because they are actually more tied together than you perhaps think. Because they both talk about widows. We're going to begin with looking at, which button is it? This one. At this first section. As Jesus teaches, he says, watch out for these teachers of the law. These are the same people that Jesus essentially just spoke a parable against. These are the religious elites, described by broad terms such as scribes or Pharisees, Sadducees could be included. Jesus is referencing all the people who are so-called experts 
in religious law. They are experts in interpreting. They are experts in understanding. They are experts in teaching the Jewish law. The modern-day equivalent, we would say, is clergy. Clergy would be considered the so-called, perhaps, experts of biblical translation or the experts of, of the uh, way to describe and teach and help people learn how to live what Scripture says. I would be considered a clergy member, right? We have lots of different names for clergy members, too, just as there would be lots of different names for teachers of law. We call them pastors. We call them ministers. We call them priests, right? These are the people who went to school for religious purposes. Maybe like, I don't know if it's actually even on my wall, but they have a degree called an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, or they have a THM, which would be a focused on a Master of Theology, or maybe they, they went on and they have some type of PhD in Old Testament or, or New Testament, some type of doctorate. They are the religious elite that maybe Jesus would speak to today. Watch out for those clergy members. As Jesus focuses in on these religious elites, he brings to mind the, the things that these religious elites are doing for their own glory. That's the very thing that Jesus got frustrated with his disciples about, was thinking about how to make themselves great, right? First, it was all the disciples who were talking about who was the greatest, and then it was James and John who wanted the seat on the right and left of Jesus. They wanted to be put in positions of honor, and, and Jesus focuses in and said, look at these people. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They like to be greeted with honor and respect. They're the people that want to have the most important seats, the places of honor, wherever they go. These are the people that desire prestige. You know, they're wearing special clothes in in order to be noticed. It's probably the special clothes that we would find if we went to Numbers chapter 15, which we're not going to put it on the screen, but there was special clothes that had tassels on them. And they like to bask in the esteem of, of people noticing the special clothes, the tasseled clothes that they're wearing. They like to be noticed by people that they would probably say are of lesser status than themselves. I tried to figure out what would be the equivalent today, and there was um, some commentary on this passage provided uh, by the Center for Excellence in Preaching that referenced an um, a Instagram feed called Preachers and Sneakers. Maybe you've never heard, or maybe you've never heard of Instagram. Maybe you don't regularly frequent that place. It's a place you can see pictures, often commentary. 
And preachers in sneakers is one where an individual took it upon themselves to take pictures or screenshots of various pastors, religious elites, teachers, and finding out where it is that they get their clothing. And they particularly highlight people who are wearing more extravagant things. I just went on there yesterday. I don't have a picture, but there was one pastor, I I don't remember what his name was, but they showed the shoes he was wearing, that they were Louis Vuitton shoes, and they retailed for $1,340. And then they showed the pants that he was wearing, and the pants were also Louis Vuitton pants, and they were like $2,300, I don't know more than I would buy pants for, right? And I don't say that to say, hey, you know, look at these pastors, look at that. And and I don't say that either because Jesus likely wasn't saying every single scribe, Pharisee, teacher of the law was operating the way he's describing here. And, And I would not go to say that those who are wearing sneakers that I would not buy or pants that I probably wouldn't buy, that they don't have their heart in the right place either. Perhaps you could take pictures of my clothing too and say, Pastor Steve is wearing some shoes from Johnston and Murphy and he spent $140 on them. He didn't go to Kmart and spend $30, right? We can, we can always go back to that space. And what Jesus is pointing out though is a specific type of individual who is in it for the glory, who is supposedly an expert of the teaching of the law, supposedly knows what the greatest commandment was before they asked Jesus, and yet they're living in a way that is contrary to what Scripture is telling them. And that's because they are devouring widows' houses. They're making lengthy prayers just for show. Historically, the unfortunate thing is that the teachers of the law have devoured, so to speak, widows in a few ways. The teachers of the law would often give advice to widows. That'd be a a normal thing to do. Much of the time, this had to do with assistance Uh, with widows managing and executing their husband's will and, and the estates of their husbands. But though it was forbidden, many teachers of the law would take payment from widows. Some teachers of the law were known to take advantage of them, essentially freeloading upon these widows taking their offer of generous hospitality to the extreme and becoming essentially a burden upon these widows. Other teachers of the law would make a habit of praying for widows, which sounds like a wonderful thing. I'm I'm sure we would all love the opportunity to pray for them. As they would make intercessory prayer, Uh, they would also turn to the habit of accepting payment for their prayer. Essentially turning prayer into a business enterprise where these teachers of the law 
would pad their pockets by prayer. In some some cases, the widows wouldn't have any money or not much. And so there are known cases where the teachers of the law literally took their home as payment. I want to remind you, I I said it earlier, they were essentially forbidden from receiving payment from these widows, and yet what happens is the teachers of the law are engaging in extortion almost, devouring widows' wealth, devouring widows' homes, And while they do that, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, if you look there, the Old Testament shows that and symbolizes widows as as the most vulnerable population. The Old Testament symbolized them as essentially helpless because it was always the man who, who owned the property and had the wealth and had the rights. And it was the widows who were in need of protection, and everyone in Israel was supposed to work towards protecting the widows who were in need, being cared for, making sure they're looked after. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, four warns, that all those who rob widows will be destroyed. This is what's going on and what has been going on that leads to Jesus say they devour widows' houses. And directly following this teaching where Jesus talks about a warning to the teachers of the law because of the way they devour widows' homes, Jesus takes the disciples to the temple, and maybe they were already there, but they sat down opposite of the treasury. That would be the the place where the offering of the treasury was accepted. It would be uh, in the court of women, so basically anybody could give into the treasury. And Jesus highlights not just a widow, but he calls her a a poor widow. Perhaps if we think about the correlation of this passage, even though we don't directly read it in Scripture, we're led to perhaps think that this poor widow herself has been taken advantage of. That this poor widow herself has had her home and her wealth devoured by the teachers of the law, and all that she has left are two lepta, the smallest of the Greek coins that there was, the least value of anything in circulation. You could say it was a a penny, perhaps. 
this widow had enough money to buy just a tiny amount of flour that she could have made one biscuit. And instead of purchasing this biscuit, she gives it to the treasury. And as we kind of mentioned earlier, Jesus praises her for giving her all. Instead of going to the market and buying what would amount to a biscuit and having food for that day or the next day, she chooses instead to take these two small coins and and drop them into the treasury. And that points to what I had mentioned earlier in contrast to these large gifts that were given by rich people that would clang into the, the bowl of the treasury, this woman drops two coins that barely tink off the metal, perhaps, sharply contrasting those two gifts. Even though she didn't have much to her name, she gives God all of her heart, all of her soul, all of her mind, all of what she has. I wonder a little bit if that slightly mimics what we know Jesus will do very soon, where Jesus himself, through sacrifice, will not just give all of what he has, but will give his very life. But I think as good as a sermon is that focuses on her internal state in giving and, and, and could be an encouragement to, to giving to the church, the other point that Jesus is communicating here is a comparison of recognition that the rich people desire, recognition that the teachers of the law desire, and the abuse of the widows. This widow, though she is giving to the treasury system, is now giving her money in direct support of the people who were supposed to provide for her. The teachers of the law, the religious system, was supposed to be looking after the widows, and instead of looking after the widows, they begin taking advantage of of her and of all other widows, and then she gives her money to the very system that is not caring for her. She gives everything she has to the very people who took everything else from her. And that decision, it shows the impiety of all the teachers of the law. How they continue to line their pockets, 
how they take advantage of and take what they don't need. And yet somehow, somehow people, even though people are being overlooked in need, even though the, the widows are being taken advantage of, somehow feel this obligation to sacrificially give, or maybe less than sacrificially if they were rich, to this organization that is a den of thieves, so to speak. The den of thieves that continues to impoverish people. And it's not just the temple and the teachers of the law that could assist and help this woman, this widow, not live in poverty. Her gift was contrasted to these other rich people that, yeah, sure, they gave of some of what they had, but they had way more, and they also could have had opportunity to, to care for those in need. And yet, they don't because they get more recognition by placing a ton of coins in the treasury as everyone sees them give in this open space and hears that loud clang of coins as it enters into the treasury. And maybe we're, perhaps we wonder if these rich people are, are not willing to help those in need, are not willing to help this poor widow who put everything into the treasury. And if those in the temple who were meant to care for and look after these widows, if, if they're not doing, who will? Perhaps we wonder what's going to happen to all that money that is given into the treasury? Will the money that these teachers of the law have gained from devouring widows' wealth and widows' houses be put in a bag and given to Judas? Money perhaps used to bribe Judas coming from the the treasury, the one who's going to betray. Money used to bribe and give up the only person that really had compassion and desire, desire for this woman not to live in poverty. as she throws away essentially her all for the sake of the temple. It's the people in the temple who are ready to throw away Jesus' life to preserve their power, preserve their authority, and preserve their appearance of piety. And yet everything that was essentially just described was not the way it was supposed to be. 
Jesus had something different in mind for his community. Not a community where a poor widow would put in everything she had and be left with absolutely nothing. No, we, we read later, uh, in the book of Acts, what Jesus desired of, of his church. We read of, of how Jesus desired they operate and they live. And in verse 32 through 35, we'll read those. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. These are now the, the teachers of the law. They are the, the religious elites, the, the apostles. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there was, there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it wasn't used to, to, to line the pockets of the religious elite. The disciples didn't use that opportunity to increase their glory or something like that, no. They knew that the way the system operated before was not the way it was meant to be. And they distributed it to anyone who was in need. Perhaps after reading that passage, if we would go back to Jesus witnessing this poor widow put her last two small coins, though he highlights the significance of her gift, the Lord probably really didn't ever desire that she gave of everything she had. What he wanted was that the teachers of the law would, would give of what they had, that she would not be in need. He desired for those individuals who, who were in the positions of authority would not think of themselves, but begin to think about all those that they care about. I wonder how, how can we think about this passage then today? And it's, it's, it's kind of a hard one because it makes you, you look a little bit at, our, at our, ourselves, at, at me, at our elders and deacons, perhaps. And that can be a, a little maybe uncomfortable, right? How do we in the church perpetuate systems And, and I wonder if we, we did a, an evaluation of our budget, 
what would we look at? Would we, what would we see the percentage of distribution of wealth in what we give? Would we find that the majority of it focuses in an insular manner on ourselves, on making sure the building and the lights and the staff and the insurance and all the other things that we have, the ministries of the church, would that be the, the greatest thing? Would, would we see that there's a significant amount of of what we give that is doing exactly what Jesus is describing. That there is no needy person among us. That's what our benevolence is for, right? Maybe there's, there's another way, too, that we can think about that. There's, there's more than one way to, to give, and we often use words like time, talents, and treasures because we like to have it alliterized, right? The time, the time that we have available in our life to maybe volunteer, right? Um, the talents that we have, that we have the ability to share our skills with, with other people who are within the church. And then you, you get to treasures, which would move back to offerings. And what if we thought, about those times and those talents and treasures. I wonder, do we sometimes elevate those who serve more almost to an unhealthy point? Perhaps slipping into the expectation then that everyone must volunteer like X person who is at this stage of life and is at church every night of the week or is working diligently not only on Sunday but Monday and Wednesday and other times to make sure that the ministries of the church move forward. Is there some way that we by elevating specific people, then in our minds move others lower on the list, I guess you could say, and expect them to do the same thing as, as these, these other people, where the reality is maybe these individuals that say they don't have time to volunteer, maybe that's the most vulnerable thing that they can do. And it puts them in a position that says, I'm hurting. I'm not right. And I need the, the care of the congregation right now. 
Just as what should have happened with this widow is that this widow should have been able to say, I need the care of the treasury system. I need the the care of those who are in power instead of giving those last two small coins. Or where someone in our church gives the, the last of their available energy and then they don't have anything left at all. I wonder if, if that perhaps is a way that we elevate and have expectation. I think for seasons in our life, perhaps the most vulnerable thing we can do is to allow others to fill us up. To recognize that we can't give it all. Because we can't give out of a place where we have nothing. We need others to fill us up. We need God's word to fill us up. I think that's one of the hardest things any one of us can do is ask for help. We don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I can figure it out all myself, right? Because if I I show somebody else I don't have everything in order, if I stop having this perception of perfection, that I have all my finances right, and I have all my life right, and I am the best dad ever, and I never get angry at my children, if if I don't have this, this image, and if I let people in, I'm I'm somehow breaking something. I'm somehow not doing what I'm supposed to do. But the truth is, we're not here to be in the image game because we all, in essence, are spiritually living in poverty. We're spiritually living in poverty with everything dependent, not on ourselves, but on Christ, in Christ's ability to come in our lives and fill us up so that we can then fill others and and meet their needs. So I wonder, as we we go forward through this time period of, of Lent, I'd like us to think about this in two ways. The first way is to think about how can we be vulnerable and acknowledge our need for for someone else, for someone within the church, for the church body as a whole to fill us up. So we're not giving the, the last two pennies of our energy the last two pennies of our finances, the last two pennies of our our spiritual energy and be left with nothing. And then after we've, we've done that, we think the other way. What do, what do we have 
that can help someone meet their need. It's a, a two-way street, right? Um, Mindy's not here. She always told me uh, something about this. Um, she said, I always found it wonderful when I was in the thick of having these small children when someone older who's past that stage would, would offer to give me a hand. And, and so she's like, I've always since that point said, okay, you know, where can I look ahead to receive from someone who's further than me, but also in the same time look behind at someone who is in desperate need for assistance? And I can help them too. That, that's the, what I have in mind. So let's pray to the Lord and, and have us allow the Spirit to work in our lives where we have the opportunity not only to give but to receive. Let's pray. Father, it's, we live in a world that at times is infatuated with this image of self-sufficiency, this image of perfection. If we're on social media, Lord, it's really easy to go and, and look through various feeds to see various reels where it seems like people have everything in order in the so-called perfect life. And yet, that often can just be an image that masks a real need. Cause your spirit to work in us that we can acknowledge those places of need in our life. That we can advocate not only for ourselves, but that we can advocate for others when we see positions of need. That we as individuals would, would not be those who are like those Pharisees and teachers of the law, taking every last ounce of energy from other individuals, but that we would be those who are life-giving and life-filling, and that you would receive glory in all of those things. It's in Christ's name that we pray.